Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, everyone. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books Network and African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Erin Jesse. Um, she's based in Scotland University of Glasgow. Is that right, Erin? That's correct. Uh, well, University of Glasgow, yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. I knew you were at Edinburgh, so I didn't want to get that wrong, but you're now at Glasgow. And you are a co-author on a graphic novel about a historical figure in Rwandan society. The book is called uh, Nirgitwa. And I wanted to um, welcome you, number one, and ask you, how did this book even come into existence? Oh, thank you. And yeah, thanks for having me here today and giving us an opportunity to kind of get the word out about the book. Um, yeah, so Nirgitwa's it's kind of it's a very very collaborative graphic novel um so I mean to give you the kind of brief rundown um basically a few years ago um a historian Sarah Watkins who I've done some work with here and there um she had hired somebody to go in and digitize um some of these old oral traditions that have been documented by the Belgian historian Jan van Sina and um yeah, she she sort of reached a point. There was there was just all these really great great stories in these oral traditions as she was going through and and working on her doctorate. Um, but she wasn't going to have time to work with them, and so she basically said to me, you know, like if you'd like access to these, I'm happy to give them to you. And um, at the time, I was launching. This was about 2016. I was launching a new project um, with a colleague, Silver Mizerwa in Rwanda. Um, we were really interested in sort of digging deeper into early Rwandan history and the ways that people would have kind of been bonded um, within society um, that didn't always sort of just equate back to ethnicity, you know, ethnicity and in, in the literature in Rwanda is a really, really prominent concept that kind of sometimes scholars use to almost determine and explain everything that happens in the country. And we wanted to go a bit deeper. And so we decided to um, work with some of these oral traditions and I was quite interested um, in taking kind of a gendered approach to analyzing and translating these. I was quite interested in, in trying to focus in on the Rwandan women that were present in these oral traditions, um, because this is something that Vansina himself never really looked at. And so we started doing these translations. Um, it was a really, really slow process because the form of Kinyarwanda um, that the original storytellers used um, was quite archaic. And I mean, even to Silver, someone who's you know grown up in the country, speaks Kinyarwanda fluently, there were a lot of things that like even he didn't know. And so then we'd have to go back to elders and ask for advice and suggestions about what things meant and how we might interpret that and, and translate into English. Um, and yeah, it was then sort of through this process that we um, we encountered the story of Nirgitwa, as told by the elder in Damiogabe back in 1958. And it was such a just a fascinating, fascinating story um, that we pretty quickly decided we wanted this to be this the first graphic novel that we were going to create. Um, we brought in Christian Mafajiri, um, the artist, to do the illustrations. So he joined the team. Um, and sort of took a lead on, on handling the, the illustration side of things. And, and yeah, and then we worked together um, as well with Jerome Erenhunda so that it would then be available, um, not just in English, uh, but also in Kinyarwanda and French. Because of course we really wanted this to be um, a graphic novel for Rwandan audiences, you know, something that they would see and sort of see themselves and their society in to some extent, so. That's terrific. There's a lot going on here. Number one, the collaboration. Um, I think if you're not in community with scholars of the place, um, what exactly are we doing? So I might ask you to reflect on that. But I also um, 
heard you speak about a royal dialect, if I understood correctly, when you spoke of that archaic Kinyarwanda, and it's a good reminder to listeners that even though it's a singular um, language in the country, it certainly has a, a class-based reality. Different groups of people use a different um, dialect, as you noted. And then, of course, the last thing, I mean, so much more, but this is the last panel race, is that it's a series. So this is the first in a series. You're going to analyze other um, um, characters or not characters, individuals who lived in a historical moment. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of the whole, originally we got funding from the Royal Society of Edinburgh to do like a scoping project. Um, and yeah, with, with the first bit of funding that they gave us, we basically said we were going to try and experiment with a graphic novel template for telling um, one of these oral traditions in a new way. And um, yeah, and I mean, that was basically Nyargitva. That was that was this first graphic novel. Um, and then they've given us funding, or they gave us funding, I should say, for a second one. Um, and just because of the pandemic, um, it's been really slowed down the production of it. So um, that will, we're, we're about to submit the sort of final polished version to uh, Mudachimura Publishing House, which is the publisher who did um, the first one. And yeah, if, if these get a good reception and um, we're able to find further funding, I mean, we've translated now, uh, I think upwards of 85 of these oral traditions from the Vancina collection that specifically speak about women's lives in some way. Um, so, I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of how many we could do. It's just, I think the funding will be the limiting factor of what we can, what we can afford to do realistically. Mm -hmm. Did you find anything in, in the process of interpretation that like surprised you as someone who is an oral historian and is concerned with um, not only the words themselves, but the context of those words? Yeah, I mean, quite, oh God, this could be a long response. Um, <laughs> I'm ready, lot, I'm ready. <laughs> quite a lot. Um, I think the first really challenging thing, um, or the, the surprising thing I should say, was um so when when Watkins gave us the um the sort of digitized um basically they were digitized copies of the transcripts that have been created either by Vancina or members of his research team between 58 and 60. Um, so I'm not fluent in Kinyarwanda. Um Silver of course is but basically just because we wanted to be able to work quite quickly together to identify which stories might be most relevant, um, we went to the French um, translations because basically all of the Vancina collection materials were in Kinyarwanda and then had a French translation. So we thought it would be quickest um, to start working, like to kind of do a survey through them all by looking to the French. Um, and the French translations in, in many ways were just not accurate compared to what was then in the Kinyarwandan versions, the original, because most of the stories um, you know, the, the people, the, the elders and the historians and so on who shared them with Mancina, they all chose to present these oral traditions in Kinyarwanda. And then and then someone, we're not quite sure how that worked, but someone made the French translation. Yeah, so, so the first sort of surprise was just, okay, we really can't rely on the French translations for this. We have to go back to the original Kinyarwanda. Um, the next big surprise then was just how complex the level of the Kinyarwanda was, because like, as you sort of indicated, you know, and as you, as you led into your last question, um, the forms of, of, of Kinyarwanda that are spoken by these elders, um, first of all, I mean, yeah, they, they typically weren't just sort of like ordinary rural Rwandans, you know, farm farming people and, and this kind of thing. A lot of them were court affiliated in some ways. And in some cases, you know, these were court historians. They were like professionally trained um, to, to present these oral traditions in a very particular way. And so the language 
um, I mean, it's very poetic, it's very symbolically laden. And um, I mean, when we really began to dig into the Kinyawanda originals, it suddenly became clear, okay, this is probably why the French translations aren't very accurate because like, how do you even begin to translate a phrase like this or a word like this that has so many possible meanings accurately into a second language where there isn't kind of an equivalent word or we don't share a same, like the same knowledge of a particular proverb or, or a particular moment in history or a particular figure. Um, and so, yeah, like our, our sort of translation process, I, I think initially kind of envisioned because I was maybe at best used to working between um, modern French and Kinyarwanda into English. I, I sort of thought like, well, it shouldn't take us, you know, too long. <laughs> we should be able to get this in the first draft. Say, um, yeah. Yeah. But like, as we started getting into it, it was just like, gosh, we have no idea what this could possibly mean. And it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And like I said, that's when then we would like, you know, call up an elder and sort of be like, you know, if somebody said this to you, what do you think it would mean? Right. <laughs> like, how would you, how would you explain this to somebody who was really stupid and doesn't understand, you know, the broader cultural context and these kinds of things. And um, yeah. And, and like sometimes too, that meant, you know, this project was really um, so supported by the folks at what's now the Rwandan Cultural Heritage Academy. And there's a lot of historians and cultural heritage specialists there who who we would also kind of bug and be sort of like, well, yeah, like, you know, how how, how would we do this? And, and sometimes, again, they couldn't even give us sort of one straightforward response, but they might give us three ways we could possibly interpret it, not knowing, you know, the original context. So, yeah, I mean, all of that was was a surprise. Um, I, I could give other examples as well, but again, I don't want to <laughs> waffle on no, for too long. Of course, long. I appreciate your... Um, um... Um, synthesis basically but you raise I think a pretty important question like working in a country like Rwanda where there are multiple language tracks is something that really requires care it requires precision it requires uh, collaboration and I think you know patience too and, and an open-mindedness and I think that's one thing that I really value about the book a it's not intended for a foreign audience which is nice i'm gonna have my students read it just because i want them to be discomforted everything's written for americans um, <laughs> in their mind you know that's not true their first year undergrads so um it'll be a great book for that um, but i wanted to sort of pivot to the material what is the story behind here and why did you choose this one to be the first she's a woman obviously 17th century um, what's the collaboration behind the choice of the story in this particular story? What is it? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so Nyiragitwa, uh, this wasn't the first oral tradition that we translated. I think it was maybe the 10th or 12th. Um, but yeah, as, as Silvera was going through, I mean, because we typically, you know, the days prior to COVID, we would sit by, side by side and sort of talk through the translations and he would be sort of speaking and I would be typing in English what he was saying. And, you know, we'd go back and forth and he just, he started getting really excited about this one because he's like, no, there's stuff happening here that's like, like, you just, you don't hear women like this, really. Like, it's it's not unusual in in the historiography on Rwanda, for example, to for women to pop up where they're queen mothers, right? So they're, you know, co-regents with the king, they're, they're politically quite powerful and, and a little more prominent. Um, but Nyirgitwa, I mean, I would say she's semi-elite, like her daughter, her father would have likely been a chief, we think, because um, there are lots of oral traditions about a chief Sachiega. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be that's her father. Whoever her father was, I mean, he's wealthy enough to give her a few cattle. 
um, which she then grows into like a proper herd. Um, so she becomes quite wealthy because at, at that point in time, the 17th century wealth and status was accrued largely through um, the number of cattle that you had, right? And right. Um, what then becomes also quite interesting, and again, like there's moments in the historiography in Rwanda where you hear of women being talked about as like spiritual leaders or diviners, um, you know, in these quite sort of uh, spiritually powerful roles. Um, and of course, in, in the story, um, you know, get to, I won't give too much away, but starts to kind of exhibit some of these, um, some of these skills. <laughs> and, um, you know, and by the end, she's sort of become this really powerful figure within the community in her own right. And it, it kind of then escalated because we were really excited about the story. Um, and of course, as I said, you know, we were, we were supported in this project by the Rwandan Cultural Heritage Academy. So we then, we went back to them and because we also, you know, we, we've been providing training to, to some of the researchers off and on over the years and this kind of thing for doing oral history and doing cultural heritage research where they've reached out and, and wanted a bit of support. Um, and so we used one of these workshops as an opportunity to just kind of vet the story with them and see what they thought. And they also got really excited. Um, one of their researchers in particular was just like, this is unheard of. Like, you know, women can't go on to do these kinds of things. Like this, this just didn't happen in Rwandan history. And, you know, so we actually kind of had to show him the original, um, or not the original, but like the transcript to kind of say like, no, look, this was recorded in 1958. This is actually what this person says happened. Um, and yeah, and in other instances too, it was just this, um, because the Vancina collection materials were originally um, archived in Rwanda, um, but then over the years, I think probably during the First or Second Republics, if not the genocide, they were basically destroyed. A lot of the archival materials were destroyed relating to the, um, what was called the Naginya Kingdom, the antecedent to Rwanda, modern Rwanda. Right. Um, so yeah, they just, they hadn't really heard these stories before in these forms. Um, the idea that a woman could be doing these things, that she could amass cattle, that she could, you know, become politically powerful as well as spiritually powerful, like, and in official history, right, um, and a, a history that was told by an elder who was once court affiliated, they found that really powerful. And um, yeah, I remember one of the researchers just kind of saying, like, this proves it, this proves it, you know, Rwanda's not always been patriarchal. The patriarchy was introduced by the colonizers, which <laughs> was quite, was quite amusing. Um, yeah, sure. So, so yeah, on the basis of that sort of reception and, and just, you know, the amount of support behind, you know, the work that we were doing, we decided to go with Nyargitwa and, like you said, make people a little uncomfortable, maybe, but also hopefully open people's eyes to what might have been possible for women in the past, right. but we just don't know about because historians either weren't interested or they dismissed it or, you know, they just didn't think to ask these questions in the first place. It is pretty interesting, as you said in the beginning, that Vancina himself, he has this book on, you know, how he helped found the discipline, the field of African historical studies. And the book is interesting, but it's also a bit arrogant in that regard, I think. Mm. So for you to bring in um, a female actor, I think is pretty interesting because Vancina himself, just like McKay, um, didn't consider women to be as important. But when you were speaking, it made me think of something I learned in the work of Jenny Burnett, women who behave yeah. like men and they're of a particular um, social class, a particular political affiliation can be either praised or insulted as a quote unquote man woman. Did that yeah. come up at all in terms of like thinking about contemporary Rwanda from this historical perspective? Yeah, there was a bit of that actually, because um yeah, this idea, you know, the, the sort of phrase, um, that, that term being a man woman, um, which, yeah, gets applied to me from time to time as well when I'm working in Rwanda. 
um, it, it has come up. I mean, there were a few, a few initial sort of concerns even about the story that perhaps um, it's near Gitoa was sort of presented in this as a bit of a kind of trickster figure who is sort of manipulative of the men in her lives. And, um, you know, that it could portray women, for example, in a negative light. Rwandan women, you know, today would maybe find a setback or something, right? Um, given that they're they're pushing for gender equality within the country with varying degrees of success. Um, so yeah, like we did have a lot of conversations about this, but I mean, at the same time, the, the thing I think we kept coming back to is just this realization that, that the machinations that surround power anywhere in the world involves to varying degrees forms of manipulation and moments where people kind of push forward in ways that, you know, aren't always ideal in terms of model behavior, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, right? Exactly, and so yeah. from that perspective, what she's getting up to in the book, um, it's it's maybe, and again, I don't think we have a good sense of what gender norms for a woman would have looked like in the 17th century. So I say it may, be, it may yeah, have been fair. of contemporary gender norms, but likewise, it could have just been like, this is how power was made and and maintained and, and acted upon, right? Um, if you were of this sort of social class, this kind of semi-elite um, class, right? So, yeah, the yeah. so-called rich without money as the RPF, the current government has categorized um, their social classes because as we both know, the current yeah. government has made social classes plain in the hopes of reducing poverty. So we now have a metric um, using mm. their own language. One thing I did want to ask you about um, is the process of... Um, Sort of this tentative finding what can we learn from a story like this as scholars of you know rwanda the region even um the um continent more broadly about tentative findings and being less um assured of what we actually think we know that's a nice way of putting it um yeah because i often sort of say like with working on rwanda i feel like i become over time more aware of what i don't know than what i do <laughs> um yeah well i mean i think I think, you know, from my broader work, like I'm often quite interested in the process of the research and I write about that a lot along with kind of, you know, serious scientific findings and, and these kinds of things, which is, is probably the result of my background in anthropology and oral history. Um, but I, I mean, I would hope one of the things that scholars would take away from this is just the value of looking at older materials, whether they're archived or, or not, you know, looking at them through a fresh lens, like, um, just by, you know, Silvera and I kind of coming to this material and looking at them with kind of a gender lens in mind, um, you know, that, that we're able to suddenly open up all of these new questions. And we might not have nice, tidy answers for all of those questions, but the questions in themselves are fascinating. And I hope down the line are going to lead to really amazing new areas of research for, for us, for other scholars, hopefully okay. for Rwandan scholars, right? Um, so it's those creating of avenues, right, for new kinds of research questions to ask and new places to look and, and also revisiting old materials with a kind of fresh, fresh perspective. Because I think that's one of that's been one of the most rewarding aspects of this project so far, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I mean, just acknowledging that with the historiography, and I suspect Rwanda is not unique in this regard, sure. you know, there are a lot of things that past scholars and current scholars are overlooking, um, and, and to the detriment of our understanding of these societies and these communities and these people, right? Um, so, again, I mean, I guess, I guess this is closely related to the, the first kind of point that I made, but, um, 
you know, just because a collection or something seems to have been studied exhaustively. And I mean, that was certainly my initial thought when, you know, you think about Vancina's broader body of work and, and especially Antecedents to Modern Rwanda, which is almost entirely grounded in this collection of oral traditions that he helped mm-hmm. document. Um, it's like, what's the point of going back and looking through that again, right? It's like, no, but you always find something, you know, but there's always new things to be explored and new new ways to approach it and, and new potential findings to come out. Um, and you you yeah. um, say a lot that's quite important too, like that curiosity as a scholar, you know, we should never be too um, firm, I think, in what we think we know. Um, yeah. and I think, um, it's interesting too, just the nature of the collaboration, uh, which I think scholars could also be more mindful of, you know, with whom and how we collaborate. And lastly, it's a nod to slow scholarship. There's, you know, a small feminist move in the academy to school scholarship and what you're describing is I think a, a great example and to have a graphic novel as a scholarly output I think is pretty interesting so that's where I wanted to pivot as we begin to wrap up how, how did you choose to illustrate how did you figure out the veracity of the illustrations assuming that was one of your concerns how how did you choose to craft the images that go along with the story mm. Yeah, well, I've, I mean, I've long been a fan of, of, you know, people like Joe Satchko, um, you know, who do graphic novels and use them to tell sort of, you know, these really amazing and really complex stories through a kind of mixture of like written text and and, and illustrations. Um, So I've I've long wanted to do a graphic novel project of some kind. I just didn't know sort of what it was going to be. Again, I mean, I would say that this is one of the big surprises <laughs> associated with this project, just sure. because I'm not an artist myself. I mean, like I can do stick figures and stuff, but like, you know, no one's paying money for that. Um, we brought Christian Mafajiri on board. And I mean, he's done a lot of different types of graphic novels for a lot of different audiences over the years from, you know, journalistic graphic novels, short story type things to children's books. Um, and he's, I mean, he's this really a sort of creative, imaginative person. Um, So I think he almost immediately had kind of a vision of how he wanted it to look. So again, we had to have these really in-depth conversations um, because we also wanted it to be as historically accurate as as possible, right? Again, we wanted Rwandans to be able to look at this and see that it's Rwandan. And, you know, and and we also know like Rwandans often are very, very proud of their cultural heritage, understandably. So we went together, we visited the Ethnography Museum in, um, in Huye, um, in Batari, and we looked at some of the um, collections there, like for old basketry and clothing, and just to try and give us a sense of like, okay, so we don't have photographs, like colonial era photographs aren't really going to be relevant for, you know, drawing a woman from the 18th, uh, 17th century, but, um, you know, maybe from some of this other material culture that's that's held in the museum, we can start to get a sense of what things might have looked like. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think there were times maybe when when Christian found it a little bit constricting. Um, But at the same time, I mean, I think the artwork that he produced is just phenomenal. Like it's beautiful, it's colorful, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and I mean, that is some of the feedback we've had from from Rwandans who've looked at the graphic novels so far as they've just been like, this is so Rwandan, which is, you know, exactly what we were going for. So, um, yeah, so, you know, again, slow process, lots of collaboration. You know, we started out with pencil drawings. Chris would basically give us you know, sort of pencil sketches of what he was envisioning. And then we would like go off, have a conversation, talk to Chris about it, you know, come to some kind of understanding what maybe needed to be changed or how something needed to be look, um, needed to look. 
Um, and then, you know, he would go back and draw it again until we were happy with it. And then it would go into color. Um, the other, the other people I should mention in this as well is again, the team at the Rwandan Cultural Heritage Academy, because we actually um, took a couple of their researchers uh, sort of um, draft, printed draft copy to look at in color once we were sort of happy with it. Um, and then they too brought up some really important points. Like, so you'll notice on the cover of the graphic novel, Nirgit was got sort of like a, um, a fabric piece across her chest, right? But in the actual main part of the book for much of it, like she's bare breasted. Um, and of course right. bare breasts for women and men would have been appropriate in Rwanda in the 17th century. But one of the concerns that was raised by um, one of the researchers we work with at the Rwandan Cultural Heritage Academy was that, well, you know, but Rwanda is a very Christian country today. Um, and a lot of people might not find it appropriate, especially if this is a book for sort of like young adults, um, if, if, you know, she appears on the cover bare-breasted, right? So that's not historically accurate, but that's a moment where like sort of uh, present day sensibilities, you know, made meant that we sort of decided, okay, well, we'll sacrifice the historical accuracy, but, you know, hopefully that means at least in picking up the book, we're not like horribly offending anybody, so. Can you talk about the reception in Kigali and Rwanda? Who Who is reading it, um, if you know? Yeah, to be honest, it's hard for us to tell. Um, just because, so the book has only been out for, I don't know, 10, 11 months, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, so we haven't got any definitive sense yet from the publisher, like where it sold well and who's been buying it or these kinds of things. Um, it seems it has been selling well, like he's open to, you know, publishing more of these down the line. So that's always a good sign. Um, but I mean, in terms of just like folks that are kind of outside of our circle who may have purchased this, um, we don't really have a sense yet of what, right. of what the reception is, but with other people that we've either sent copies or, um, we have a couple of people who've sort of reached out through contacts, you know, to, to provide us with feedback, um, their, their responses have been overwhelmingly positive, um, one of the, I think it's still up on Amazon, one of the anonymous reviews that we got basically called it like a gift to the world, which was, you know, really lovely to hear. And there was another person who kind of emailed the, the publisher just to say like, you know, why, why haven't we been getting these before now? Like these are incredible. So yeah, it, it seems like people are really liking it. Um, but yeah, like, unfortunately, one of the things I'd been hoping to do, had it not been a pandemic, was to go with Jerome and Silver and Chris into some schools and, you know, with older sort of high school age yeah. students, you know, and, and see if we can get some interesting conversations going around the graphic novel and get a sense of what they think. Because again, that's sort of the audience we were aiming for. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's not been possible yet. So I think that's something we're going to aim to do um, when international travel becomes sort of possible again, safe again, um, where we can meet with Rwandans without having to worry about potentially infecting them with COVID from Scotland. <laughs> that, <laughs> that seems fair. That seems fair. But it is, it is something we have our eye on. Yeah, it's um, certainly a hindrance to our work and um, an important consideration that we're not always having front of mind, even though as we live in the pandemic. I wonder if there's anything particular in your background as a scholar of Rwanda that led you to this project? There's something in your PhD training or the relationships you built through your own work on oral history? How did you come to develop a book like this in the way that you did? I'm going to call it a book because it's a graphic novel, but it's also quite scholarly. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I guess, I mean, I think having, having done 
like my doctoral studies and my postdoc and everything, you know, focusing very much on the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, um, which, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure people listening to this podcast will be familiar with in some way or another. Um, you know, it's a really, really dark moment in Rwandan history. It's one that tends to kind of dominate people's understandings of the country, especially if they're outsiders to the country. Um, and I mean, I can remember several instances where I'd be working with Rwandans and asking them, you know, doing these interviews and this ethnographic work with them, talking to them about the genocide, um, and especially like elders who would often just say, why is this all ever, anybody's ever interested in? Like, don't you know, you know, what an amazing history this country has and like the stories I could tell you. And, and you know, because I was really focused on the genocide, uh, that's what I was, you know, there to study. That's, that's kind of the world, I guess you could call it, that I was immersed in. Um, I, I just, I didn't really have time to delve into it. Um, these, these other aspects of Rwandan history um, in any significant detail. Um, and I think also it was maybe informed by the fact that like so many, cause I always tried across my research to, to interview women as well as men. Like I wanted to incorporate, you know, um, lots of different perspectives. And I wanted to be able to sort of bring in that, that gendered analysis as well. Um, yeah, just often realizing like Rwandan women often don't get to tell stories about themselves or often not highlighted in stories about the country's past again, except maybe as like queen mothers. Um, and, and I often felt as well that like they, they were being somehow disadvantaged in, in the work that I was doing and a lot of scholars in the country are doing as well. Like, again, it's just, there's so much happening focused on the genocide. There's very little happening. It looks at like anything else. Um, and so, yeah, I reached a point, I think where I just really wanted to, to, I don't know, maybe the cliched way of, of putting it is like give something back that wasn't just about this really negative moment in, in Rwandan history that maybe celebrated some of the positives um, and also poked holes, again, just that indicated it, like how little we actually do know about some aspects of Rwandan history and cultural yeah. heritage. Manage some um, of the hubris and the debates that we see on the country. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so... Yeah. Yeah, I suspect it's probably grounded in that, but I mean, I, I don't think it was necessarily conscious um, probably you're until we really got into it and started enjoying it, of course. <laughs> you know, you the way that Canadians move is quite different, move in the world, I think. This might be provocative, I don't know. Um, there, there's a different, we have a different way than Americans, but we're clearly North American. So there's a in-between Europe and in-between the United States that I think gives Canadian scholars a different perspective. Maybe a different question then as we wrap up, can you name an author or two authors whose whose work has inspired you in this project besides Vancina? Oh yeah. Besides Watkins, like two others besides those you've already mentioned. I'm thinking like you probably took some energy from Catherine Newberry, but maybe not. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, Catherine Newberry's work doesn't often highlight women. Um, Alison DeForge, um, Defeat as the, as the um, Only Bad News, uh, absolutely. Um, but no, the big person, Sarah Watkins, I mean, her doctoral research looking at um, women and their, their relationships within the court and the power that they could exercise. You know, she talks about it in terms of intimacies. Um, that, it's, it's not out as a book yet, but it's, it's just, it's a phenomenal piece of work. Um, so that was a big source of inspiration, both the friendship I have with Sarah and also just her historical scholarship, which is phenomenal. Um, but also, I mean, Jenny Burnett, I mean, like, where do you even begin in talking about how amazing her research is generally when it comes to, you know, gender related topics and, you know, understandings of especially modern Rwandan politics. Um, 
through yeah Sarah Brown's true. work at times you know mm -hmm. like really focusing in on women and it's more to do with the genocide but again that kind of gendered lens and there's moments in, in her work where she goes back and she sort of thinks more historically about about some of these gender norms um though I mean she's not taking it as far back as we are right um yeah I mean there's there's a handful of people there's also I mean a Rwandan research assistant that I had you know, because you, you, she's she's also an elder, you sort of see the way she sits in the room and she talks to people. And it's like, there's no way that women have always been, you know, subjugated to male authority in these circles. Like, it's like she's, she is the power in the room, in any room she sits in. And, I, and I'm sure, you know, knowing her has, has greatly enriched this research um, in terms of the kinds of things we imagine as being possible for women historically as well. So I'm so glad you got to mention that experience. And last but not least, um, what are you working on now? Mm. So now, as I mentioned, we're getting ready to sort of submit a polished first version of a second graphic novel, um, which we're calling Yermazungu. Um, and so this one jumps forward in time. Um, it's about an elder who is still alive today. Um, and she's rumored to be over 100 years old. Um, she used to be what's called an Amandwa. So this is like an initiate spiritual leader um, in Rwanda's indigenous religion, Kabandwa. And um, her life history, we've been documenting since about, what, 2017, I think is when we did the first interview. Um, it's phenomenal because it sort of documents her rise to power within this religion and, and the status it gave her within the community and everything. But then also with the spread of Christianity in her community, she then came to be ostracized as a devil worshiper and, and became quite poor. And um, yeah. Yeah. So again, it, it's, it's not the kind of story about Rwandan women that's typically told um, kind of stretches right across really the, the 20th century and it's phenomenal. Um, it's just a phenomenal story. So we're really excited to be getting that out into the world hopefully soon. Yeah, I mean, that nuance will be welcome because we see now 20, you know, seven, 28 years after the 1994 genocide that most women are understood as victims first and everything else is sort of an add-on. Yeah, so that yeah. nuance will be appreciated. Um, Erin, I want to thank Across you for your time. <laughs> yeah, I'm rooting for you. <laughs> um, thanks for your time. It's been great to talk to you. I've been speaking to Erin Jesse, the University of Glasgow, about her collaborative um, graphic novel about a figure in Rwandan history uh, near Gitwa. Erin, thank you. Well, thank you very much.